Today I'll be reading for you out of Acts chapter 12, verses 1 through 5. Hear now the very word of God. About that time, Herod the king laid violent hands on some who belonged to the church. He killed James, the brother of John, with the sword. And when he saw that it pleased the Jews, he proceeded to arrest Peter also. This was during the days of unleavened bread. And when he had seized him, he put him in prison, delivering him over to four squads of soldiers to guard him, intending after the Passover to bring him out to the people. So Peter was kept in prison, but earnest prayer for him was made to God by the church. Faith comes from hearing and hearing the word of God. Let us pray. Our Heavenly Father, help us now to remember your Son in this passage, to remember what your Son has accomplished in his death and resurrection. And may we also remember the calling that we have in following him and being his disciple and being those who are called to drink his cup. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. This particular chapter, this new chapter, is a is bringing it back to Jerusalem. We were in Antioch, and it actually is a nice transition because we have in chapter 11 at the end, we have where the church in Antioch was sending support by the hands of Saul and Barnabas back to Judea. And we know that in that particular context that Judea and also in Jerusalem, they were going to be experiencing a famine and that they were going to be suffering But instead of focusing on the suffering of the famine, we immediately get back to Jerusalem to see tremendous, right into your face, suffering of persecution by the hands of Herod. Now, this particular Herod is Herod Herod Agrippa. It is not Herod the Great that we have in the Gospels. It is the grandson of Herod the Great. And Agrippa himself never called himself Herod. But here we can tell that Luke is showing us some parallels purposely for us to remember something that happened in the gospel, to remember something about the calling. I chose to go with a short passage here um, in one respect because I'm still attempting to try to to do more brief sermons, but I think that we need to stop and resonate on what's going on or let resonate with us the calling that we see that James and Peter have that has been given to them from Jesus Christ. And I wanted to stop and think about James. James is an interesting character. We don't know a whole lot about James in the respect that we do with Peter or even with Paul or even with John. But we can tell by going back and looking at his life He is a very special apostle. Here we have now, in this particular passage, the first apostle to be martyred. But there's still very little to be said about him. This one thing is he killed, Herod killed James, the brother of John, 
with a sword. That's all we get. So it's good to go and look at the obituary of James to see why it's such a momentous thing here for us as we get to this part of the narrative to be reminded of the power of what is occurring in the foundations of the church, but also to remember our particular calling. So as we go through this passage, I want you to be thinking about three things that have been given to James. James was called to be a disciple. He was one of the first disciples to be called. He was called right after Peter and Andrew. It went, Jesus went straight from that particular boat over to James and John. They were actually business partners in their work in fishing. So he was one of the first disciples that we see. So we can see that there's a calling given to James, and I want to expand that understanding of James' calling, but also want you to, to see where James was convinced. Now, I'm always amazed at how often in our lectionary readings how they parallel the story of wherever we are in whatever passage we are in the book that I'm preaching to. We see that James, just in the passage that was read, was there at the moment of transfiguration. John and James and Peter had the tremendous blessing to see the glory of Jesus Christ being manifested in a physical way alongside Moses and Elijah. This was a very special confirmation of the power and the glory of God. And though we do not get that same kind, we've already been encouraged that we in our hearts get to experience a freedom and access to experiencing that glory in our hearts. We'll talk more about that. And then thirdly, we see here in this particular passage that James has completed the race. He has completed it more quickly even than what we see with some of the other apostles. He is the first one, but he has completed the race. And we too are called to strive for the completion of that same race. So as we think about James, may it be that we would be encouraged, not by the minuscule testimony of James, but the mighty and wondrous testimony of Jesus Christ being portrayed through James. It says, At about that time, Herod the king laid violent hands on some who belonged to the church. One advantage of going with a shorter passage for preaching is that we can take time to just dwell on those particular words. One, Herod the king. We are reminded by that proclamation, this is very similar to the circumstance that we have with Jesus. We see this circumstance going on throughout all of the scriptures, even in the Old Testament, even going back and considering Moses, we see that those who are in power are often in conflict with the kingdom of God. This should be an encouragement to us in this day. We should be very encouraged by another story being told in our modern current time that is basically a repetition of what has happened throughout history. The leaders and the power of this world often want to fight with God. This passage, in its end, when we get to it in a week or two, finish the end of the chapter, but you can already know by looking at the trailer of the sermons to come, Herod is going to die. 
just like his grandfather did. We can be encouraged that in this conflict, that even though it says that James was killed, we can know that there's a hopefulness, that Herod, his hope will be dead, and James' hope will be resurrected. So this is, though a a gruesome and sad beginning to a passage, it should be familiar to us. It should be a reminder to us, and therefore it should be an encouragement to us of the hope that we have. Herod, the king, laid violent hands on some that were in the church, and he killed James. He killed one who was one of the closest disciples to Jesus Christ. James and John and Peter were considered those who were right there with him through not only the transfiguration, but he was also there with the healing of the servant girl that we were preaching about not too long ago. James got to see the glory of God in a unique way. It would seem victorious for the powers against God that James would be dead. And even those who were against God, they celebrated this. Herod, it says that when he saw how the response was from the Jews and that it pleased the Jews, he decided to keep it going. And he went and he arrested Peter, another one, very close to God. The best way to read the obituary for James is to go back and look at particular passages where we see James interacting with Jesus. Again, I think one reason why we have a very small amount of information about James is that it's a highlighting of that glory of God. We don't get to hear James talk, but maybe even once where he says anything, but we can see in the story of James the might and the wonder of God. If you have your Bibles with you, turn to Matthew chapter 10, And starting with verse 5, there are different accounts of this instruction by Jesus to the the apostles. We also see where it's also the same instruction that he gave, if not a parallel story, a certain similar story of the 72. But this is Jesus instructing the apostles to go to the house of the Lord, to go to the Jews. But listen to what all he is saying here as as they go and proclaim the coming of the Messiah. These 12 that Jesus sent out instructing them, go nowhere among the Gentiles and enter no town of the Samaritans, but go rather to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. And as you... Proclaim as you go, saying, The kingdom of heaven is at hand. Heal the sick, raise the dead, cleanse lepers, cast out demons. You receive without paying, give without paying. So he gives them instruction to go about this work, this special proclamation, and to omit this proclamation to the Gentiles for this time. To go not even to the Samaritans, but go to the lost sheep of the house of Israel and proclaim the kingdom of God. Fast forward to verse 16. It says, Behold, I am sending you out as sheep in the midst of wolves. 
So be wise as serpents and innocent as doves. Beware of men, for they will deliver you over to courts and flog you in their synagogues. And you will be dragged before governors and kings for my sake to bear witness before them and the Gentiles. When they deliver you over, do not be anxious how you are to speak or what you are to say. For what you are to say will be given to you in that hour. For it is not you who speak, but the spirit of your father speaking through you. Brother will deliver brother over to death and father his child. And children will rise against parents and have them put to death. And you will be hated by all for my name's sake. But the one who endures to the end will be saved. When they persecute you in one town, flee to the next. For truly I say to you, you will not have gone through all the towns of Israel before the Son of Man comes. A disciple is not above his teacher nor a servant above his master. It is enough for the disciple to be like his teacher and the servant like his master. If they have called the master of the house Beelzebub, how much more will they malign those of his household? James is listed earlier as being a part of this group who heard this instruction who heard this calling. On one hand, Jesus is saying to focus on the lost sheep of Israel, but in time, you will be given over to governors and kings, to political authorities, to bear witness before them and the Gentiles. This was a calling given to James and given to the other apostles that as they went about this instruction from Jesus that the persecution and the opposition that they would face would ultimately further the gospel in a miraculous way unto the Gentiles and to the whole world. It would be the means in the furthering of the kingdom. James heard this, just as you heard it. Even more, he heard it. He was given that very precise instruction, and it wasn't just a generic instruction. It was a very precise prophecy of what they were to endure, and we see now in the work of the apostles, in the work of this particular passage, a fulfillment of that. But it's interesting We see two different apostles that were here in this instruction that are now in this particular narrative in Acts. One is immediately killed and the other is imprisoned. And if you've watched the trailer for the next sermon, you know that Peter is going to get out. You know that if we rewind and go back when Peter was told that he would be one who would be led into a direction he would not want to go, that he would suffer a death on behalf of Christ also. Surely he was thinking in this particular time that that time may be near. James was just killed. So he likely was thinking the same. But we see that he is not. So we can see here that there is a diversity in the fulfillment of 
the calling for each individual apostle, but there is a unity of the ultimate completion of that furthering of the kingdom. This is showing us a parallel of what Jesus had gone through and what Jesus said that they would have to go through on his sake, that he, that they were a, a student, a disciple of a teacher that would be like the teacher, that if they hate the master, they're going to hate the servant. We see that being fulfilled, but with a diversity of application. Just talking to Jonathan a moment ago about his triathlon training, and he is new to fighting that fight and trying to complete that race. He's doing well in that progress. But he was talking about how he's anticipating that people will go further than him, or not necessarily further, but faster than him. And when we think about our own particular callings, we can see all kinds of diversity of how God has us going along in that race. Some people are going really fast in a certain direction. The ultimate goal, though, is to complete that race in faithfulness. We see here that the goal is to endure to the end in verse 22. It says, You will be hated by all for my name's sake, but the one who endures to the end will be saved. It's not a matter of how fast we go or what direction it goes. The commitment that Jesus tells us is that it's the endurance to the end. Not by our own strength, mind you, but by the Spirit that we see throughout this whole narrative in Acts is being poured out upon God's people, strengthening them to get to the end. In some respects, it's like in that race, James just took off to the end very fast. And here's Peter left behind and in prison. James has already made it to the place of glory. He's already completed the race. Peter at one time, when talking to Jesus after the resurrection, standing to next of one of the other ones that were close to Jesus, the one whom Jesus loved, as John likes to call himself, Peter says, hey, I just found out that I'm going to be killed. What about this one over here? When is he going to finish the race? What is going to be his time? What's it going to be like when he makes it through the finish line? And Jesus said, it's not for you to know these things. That's not a place for you to be focused on. You need to focus on your own race. So surely there was this moment where there is this contemplation of how is this race going to end for Peter? We don't get a lot of focus about how James was thinking, but surely he went into this moment before that sword went into him, thinking about these very words that Jesus gave to him, and that he surely had some level of comfort that his death, that him being brought before Herod, was a very fulfillment of what Jesus had told him. Reading another passage of the same event of the transfiguration in Matthew 17, if you would turn there, starting with verse 1. Looking at this once again, it says that after six days, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John, his brother, and led them up to a high mountain by themselves. And he was transfigured before them, and his face shone like the sun, and his clothes became white as light. And behold, there appeared to them Moses and Elijah talking with him. And Peter said to Jesus, Lord, it is good for, uh, 
that we are here. If you wish, I will make three tents here, one for you and one for Moses and one for Elijah. He was still speaking when, behold, a bright cloud overshadowed them, and a voice from the cloud said, This is my beloved Son, with whom whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. And when the disciples heard this, they fell on their faces and were terrified. But Jesus came and touched them, saying, Rise and have no fear. And when they lifted up their eyes, they saw no one but Jesus only. Can you imagine what it would be like to be the other disciples when James and John and Peter came back from the mountain and explained what they had seen? What the other disciples may have been thinking, why did we not get to see this magnificent event? But for some reason in God's measure and in his good purposes, he allotted Peter, James, and John to see this intimate unveiling of his glory and the reality of who he is. We get to experience through the word of God and to be assured by that through the repetition and proclamation of it. But none of us have been able to see Jesus in quite the manner. But even in his own word, we are promised, even as we read this morning, that we get to experience the same type of measure of that in our own hearts. James received a confirmation of who Jesus is, the very voice of God the Father. He received a confirmation about the glory of Jesus Christ. But we too... Not only do we have the calling to follow Jesus, to drop our nets, to drop everything that we have and every hope that we have for our own provision and follow him, we also have been promised by the very book that we're preaching through that for those who repent and believe, we have the gift of the Holy Spirit. We have the revelation of God in our hearts. So as we are called to follow him, we have every reason to trust God's very word, which is the word that was proclaimed to James, Peter, and John there on the mountain, that Jesus reigns, that Jesus is powerful, that Jesus is full of glory. Do we believe that? Do we believe that we have that revelation? Do we revel in the fact that we have been given that revelation? Some of the things that I think that we miss out on that Satan doesn't want us to be reminded of, you all know who Jesus is. You all have access to God's word. You all likely, I would assume that most every one of you have been convicted of your sins. I pray that every single one of you have been encouraged by the forgiveness and the grace of Jesus Christ. Do you realize how miraculous that is? Do you realize how wondrous that is? Keep in mind that Peter, he was focusing on setting up tents 
and having a place where it was just, this is good. This fellowship is good. And, and it is a good thing. I'm, I don't say that what Peter was wanting was a, a bad thing. But do you realize what we are being told here is that your freedom from sin and your fellowship with Jesus Christ is no less magnificent because of what Jesus Christ has done and because of the Holy Spirit opening your eyes. Now, some of you may have different measures or different moments of how that revelation comes to bear. Some of you have had different experiences in your life that have affirmed that and confirmed that and given you confidence in that. Some of you say, I don't have the fullness of that. But remember, we are all at different places in that race. Just the fact that you were able to understand that is a grace from God. It is a grace from Jesus Christ. And we should not let that be something that we become numb to. Something that we become like, yeah, of course I believe. For some of you who come from other regions or who have spent time in other places in the world, that is not always the case. You don't really have to go to another place. You can just go meet some people on the street here. But those people would even maybe say, yeah, I've heard of Jesus Christ or I grew up in the church. They don't even realize how magnificent even that grace has been to them in a common grace of understanding. We receive the gospel. We receive an understanding of his word. And then often many of us go right back to living like it never existed. It is a tremendous blessing for us in this particular region and nation, that we have such a saturation of that proclamation that it's unfortunately that we've become numb to that saturation and not realize just what a great and wondrous thing that is. It is encouraging to me to hear the children say in our prayer time in the morning, thank you that we get to come and worship you. That we are able to even know his name. And to have that hope. We may not have been on the mountain with Peter, James, and John. But we are giving these stories to remind us that we have that level level of access and intimacy with Jesus Christ. But then further, kind of going on maybe something that James had a, a, a reputation with afterward in Matthew chapter 20. Looking at verse 20. It says, the mother of the sons of Zebedee, and that would be John and James, came up to Jesus with her sons. Kneeling before him, she asked him for something. And he said to her, what do you want? She said to him, say that these two sons of mine are to sit, one at your right hand and one at your left in your kingdom. Jesus answered, You do not know what you are asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I am to drink? And they said to him, we are able. He said to them, you will drink my cup. But to sit at my right hand and at my left is not mine to grant, 
but it is for those whom it has been prepared by my father. And when the ten heard it, they were indignant at the two brothers. But Jesus called them to him and said, You know that the rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them. It shall not be so among you, but whoever would be great among you must be your servant, and whoever would be first among you must be your slave, even as the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as ransom for many. Here we have a narrative of something that happened that surely the disciples reminded John and James about, about that moment. And it wasn't just the mother. It says they were indignant at them. And in another account, it actually says they're the ones who went to Jesus with this request that they would have the audacity to ask for a special place, even after having a special place. They got comfortable with that special intimacy in a different way, not understanding that that intimacy had a calling and cost of being Jesus to the world, that his purposes at that stage in their life and in the stage of our life was not to just enjoy the comforts of that intimacy, but to represent that comfort of peace with God to the world in the midst of conflict. And he says, are you able to drink this cup that I am to drink? And they, in response, make covenant, maybe foolishly, maybe arrogantly, maybe ignorantly, saying, we are able. And then again, he prophesies to them with a promise that they will drink that cup. Surely, James remembered these words at the moment of his death. It may have been the very words that comforted him to know that he had this opportunity to fulfill God's word with his death so that those in the Gentile world could see the proclamation of the king. When we look at this, we can see ourselves, I think. We misunderstand what it is to be a Christian in this age. We want to assume that being a Christian means that Our life is going to be more orderly and and that things are going to go in a way that we can accomplish all of our earthly dreams. You see this a lot in recovery ministries where there is a preaching and teaching that if you could just let Jesus help you with your addiction or your criminal problem, that you can turn your life around and be able to fulfill and be a good citizen in the world and keep a job and maintain a family. But Jesus wants so much more than that. It is not that he has come to defeat sin and death so that we can have the American dream. He has come for his glory. He has come for his people. It is a bloody and terrible fight. 
That could be very discouraging for us. But this was a calling that James had from the beginning. He dropped his nets. He dropped the hope of earthly security and gave it all to Jesus. Not perfectly, not without misunderstanding, not without confusion, but he had the tremendous privilege of being able to say now that he had been able to give his all to the service of the king. That is what Jesus says here, that the great ones, that those who are going to be considered the best, will be those who are servants and slaves. Now we hear a lot now what's going on especially when we consider the churches established in Ukraine, very much like the stories that we've been hearing about Afghanistan and also in Iran. The churches are growing. The churches are being brought to a place to their knees, but they're being humbled and they're being awakened by the circumstances that they're around them. We pray for the Russian church just as we pray for the Ukrainian church that all of these scenarios that are occurring very much like we have here with Herod, that whatever purposes God has for that, that ultimately that his people, whether it be through their survival and their freedom and release or through their death, that God's glory would be had. We can't understand the hearts of the president of the Ukraine and the president of the Russian people, but we can know the purposes of God will be fulfilled. It always happens. That is, should be a hopeful time for us when we're hearing the news and when we hear the suffering of those in the Ukraine that God is doing his purposes. And we see here that a calling for us is to earnestly be in prayer for those who are suffering. How are we praying for them? How are we praying for them right now? Are we simply just going to pray that they'll have peace? That the war will stop? That they'll be able to survive and live another day? Do our prayers fall short if we do not pray that God capture, take dominion of every single one that since the foundation of the world you have secured, bring them to yourself. Bring their hearts to yourself. That should be our prayer. And I encourage you not to get called up with just praying for earthly peace, but that you would pray that that intimacy of peace that we have of God, with God that is seen at the transfiguration would be what would occur to all those who are his at any cost. We don't have to care about who wins the war because we know that the victory will be done ultimately. We know that James died, but we know that Herod loses. He doesn't win. He doesn't win this fight. And that should be encouraging to us, regardless of who is winning or losing in Europe. It should be what encourages us when we consider our life here, in this time and place, in this region, whatever 
conflict that you're running into, have you seen yourself placed in the calling of drinking the cup of Jesus Christ? What would that look like? That could be just in a simple conflict between an employer. It could be in a conflict between a family member. It says here that you should not be the ones who get indignant that someone is striving to have power over you, but that you should be willing to give your life, as Jesus did, as a servant unto those who may persecute you by first surrendering to your own fight for your own kingdom, but to realize with confidence that there's no kingdom, no power struggle, whether personal or political, that will take over the purposes of Jesus Christ. So our calling is to do what James has done. As we consider this brief obituary of James's life, may it be that it is what our calling should look like, that we would drop our nets and follow after Jesus, that we would realize the intimacy that we have with Jesus Christ is very much in the same manner of what is represented in the transfiguration, but also in the proclamation of the early church in Acts. And may we be convinced of this, that it would be our hope, that it would be a confirmation to us that now Jesus is furthering his church and his people just as it was represented in this particular narrative. And then lastly, may it be that we would complete the race that we would stand firm and that we would pray that for those who are suffering more vivid and more elaborate, maybe, persecution, that they would have that strength to endure to the end, that they would have opportunities to be reminded of this very narrative of how God works as some may die at their side, as some may be in the midst of dying, that they would not be consumed with who's going to physically survive, but that they would stand fast, that they would hold fast to Jesus Christ even to the end. And then as we go to this table together, which this particular narrative is placed in the midst of Passover, just as Jesus' crucifixion was placed in the midst of Passover. Jesus became the Passover lamb. He tells us that we must follow him, that we must represent him. Here we have James dying at the moment of Passover. Even Herod was like Caiaphas. He wanted to hold off on doing anything to Peter because he did not want to make the Jews and the enemies of the church upset. Those who were supposed to be bearing the name of God faithfully. But God is giving us this story once again to remind us not of James's death, but to remind us of Jesus's death. Our life is to be a parallel of that. Our death is to be a parallel of that. 
we do not know and maybe not even anticipate that we will have to suffer like James and Peter. We don't anticipate that we would even have to suffer like those in the Ukraine. We might be getting a little bit more of a feel for that when we think about some of the persecution that has been happening here in the last couple of years. When we think about things that are going on in Canada. But are you able to bear the cup? Are you willing to bear the cup? Are there ways to test that in your life right now? Does it have to come to the modern day Herod doing something in your life where he's taking away some liberty or putting you in prison for you to be tested in that? As we come to this table, trusting in the body of Jesus Christ and the cleansing blood of Jesus Christ, do you realize that this hope that we have, this intimacy that we have in being with him at this table is a calling for us to die, to die to our flesh, to die to our current battles for our personal kingdoms. Are you willing to surrender to that? Are you willing to die to that? Are you willing to see it all go to pot so that Jesus's glory can be shown to the world? That Jesus's glory could be shown to your spouse that Jesus' glory could be shown to your children, that Jesus' glory could be shown to your customers and to the strangers in your life? Are you willing to take this cup and to die so that Jesus' resurrection can be glorified in you? That's a tough question that we should come to every Sunday as we come together as the body of Christ, and as we struggle with sin each day and each moment, may it be that we realize that we're not taking on any strength of our own here. We are relying fully to be filled and sustained by His body and His blood, by the hope of His forgiveness. We come weak and hungry for his righteousness. Let us pray.